At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. It's Friday, January 24th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at climatedesk.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. So, Indre, this week I spoke with not one, but two women who are at the center of something that we here on the show care a lot about, which is protecting science education, basically protecting the brains of our kids from all kinds of intellectual pollution that anti-science forces are putting out all the time. So the first guest was Eugenie Scott, who is the founding director of the National Center for Science Education, or NCSE, and she's been in that post 27 years fighting the good fight protect the teaching of evolution, and more recently, the teaching of climate science. She started this organization in her basement. It has become the go-to place for defending good science teaching, and its greatest moment was the famous 2005 Dover, Pennsylvania evolution trial, where good science proved victorious in the courtroom against pseudoscientific intelligent design, a kind of round two of the Scopes Monkey trial. So uh, Eugenie was very involved in that. My second guest was Anne Reed, who's a woman who actually led the sequencing of the 1918 flu virus while she was working at the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, and she's taking over for Eugenie as the director of NCSE, and she's its new director. She's going to chart uh, a new course, not just on continuing to protect evolution, but also more and more also in ensuring that we have good climate science education. So here's a clip from my interview with both of them. This is Eugenie Scott speaking, and she's explaining how they help teachers deal with attacks on science in a range of ways, including when the problems come from their own students. We have had uh, teachers tell us that the hand shoots up from the student. You know, my my dad says climate change is a hoax. Yeah, that that does happen. But a teacher that is confident and that presents climate change science in the same matter-of-fact way that all other sciences are presented is not going to have problems or vanishingly small problems. And part of that, is, of course, means getting the teachers better prepared on the basic science, and also, which is what NCSE has done for evolution, getting them better prepared on how to handle the pushback. You know, it's still amazing to me that in 2014, this is such a major issue in this country. Um, but of course it is. And so, you know, I'm thrilled that there's a, someone else taking over for uh, Jeannie, who's done a fantastic job, um, who's, who's going to be equally passionate about this topic. 
yeah, Jeannie is is just amazing, and you know she's someone who I, I still want to read the definitive magazine profile that's like twenty thousand words long that explains everything about who she is and why she's so important because that needs to be written by somebody. Uh, and it needs to be stunning because that's what she deserves. Uh, but yes, it is. This problem is still plaguing us. And just last week, I, I mentioned this a little in the interview. Slate uh, published new revelations that there's actually uh, charter schools in Texas that are undermining their the content that they're teaching is undermining evolution. And apparently, or reportedly, according to Slate, they receive uh, pu- some public funding in Texas. You know, what's what's really always amazed me about Jeannie, and this is a bit of a swan song for her, of course, because she's leaving the organization, is is just how nice she is. <laughs> you right, know, you'd think too. someone who, you know, who would go after and fight and make such a big difference in terms of science education in this country would be kind of like a rabid pit bull. But she's one of the nicest people I've ever met. So um, I hope and Reed can also, you know, bring in that type of civility and clarity to to uh, her work. Well, yeah, and I think that's I think that's huge, and I think that you, you remember what part of what this work is is working with a lot of different people in different states and bringing coalitions together. I mean, yeah, you can't. I don't think you can be just a rabid pit bull. So I think that that's one of the reasons that she's been successful. So that'll be our interview this week. But first, let's talk a little bit about things we've noticed in the world of science. So uh, on Tuesday, President Obama is going to give his fifth. State of the Union speech. So I thought I would kind of get us ready for that. It turns out with, that with this president in particular, science often features significantly in these State of the Union speeches, enough so that if you had your, you know, your, if your State of the Union drinking game was drink whenever President Obama mentioned science, you would not end up totally sober at the end. <laughs> so uh, let's just, let me just uh, summarize the last three years. Uh, of how of what he said really quickly uh, in these speeches. You know, 2011 was really the year that the president gave the big, big science speech in the State of the Union. And you probably remember this. He made competitiveness and innovation the central focus. He talked about how clean energy innovation was basically the Apollo project or the Apollo projects of our time. And, you know, the really big quote was, this is our generation's Sputnik moment. So drawing the analogy back to Sputnik and how we ramped up science in the U.S. then and how that needs to happen again in order to solve the clean energy challenge. And we learned um, with your interview with Mark Ruffalo that clean energy is growing, maybe not fast enough, but it is growing. Uh, So it was a pretty visionary speech. In 2012, it wasn't, you know, as science-y, but Obama did stand up for science against the budget cutters, although ultimately this wasn't successful. Uh, in that speech. And one of the one of the things that he said is that the discoveries taking place in our federally financed labs and universities could lead to new treatments that kill cancer cells, but leave healthy ones untouched. But of course, then the sequester happened and science got cut like everything else. And let me just give you science in one last State of the Union. Uh, this was last year and showing that the president really loves science. He and uh, Michelle Obama had the NASA Mohawk guy his name is Bobak Ferdowski. He was their guest at the state, one of the guests, you know, one of the famous people that they put in the gallery and the, the news cameras focus on them. And this is the guy who everybody sort of, you know, thought was the coolest dude ever after they watched him on TV as NASA landed Curiosity, the rover on Mars. And so the White House invites him to be there at the State of the Union. So there's been a lot of science in these things, and we'll probably see more. I hope so. Although, you know, I'm I'm also part of that group of in, of scientists and people who are interested in science who feel like in this country, we're just not going in the right direction. You know, science funding is being cut. Uh, and that's just not the way to get progress to move forward. So I hope that this year, not only does he really stand up for science, but that there's 
you know, that, that there's some action behind those words that we can see in the next year coming up. Well, you know, I think it's it's not for lack of trying, right? It's that it's that Congress does not want to go along with almost anything that President Obama proposes. So there's a limit to what he can do. And interestingly, I think that in this State of the Union, it's probably going to be a great example of that with respect to science issues, because everybody knows that climate change is a big agenda item for the president this year. And it's an agenda item, despite the fact that there is no cooperation anticipated from Congress. So President Obama is going to go it alone, or the administration is going to go it alone, and the Environmental Protection Agency is moving to regulate, especially coal-fired power plants. So I'm sure we're going to hear about that. Uh, and it, you know, it's 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 very hard to just do it when there's resistance from at least one major house of Congress. But that's that's kind of what's happening. So we'll hear about that. No, of, of course. And, and even, you know, in some ways you could argue just bringing up climate change science in the State of the Union is, is a step forward. So, um, so hopefully we can just expect more next year. We're expecting to hear that. So you also had something you wanted to uh, put on the radar. Yeah, that's right. So this week in the there's media attention has been focused on a study that's from 2011. So it's a couple of years old, but sometimes this happens where, you know, the media picks up on a finding that's already been somewhat established. Because um, journalists and- don't even look at the time stamp. They're like, oh, I'm going to tweet this. <laughs> Anyway, sorry, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, so in the Quarterly Journal of Experimental Psychology, which is a great journal in 2011, uh, there's a group from Notre Dame University that talked a little bit about why why it happens that sometimes, you know, you leave a room with an intention to do something, get a glass of water or, you know, move the car or whatever. And as soon as you walk out the door, you forget why you left. And um, so it's it's a really wonderful uh, study of what happens uh, to us when we when we leave a room. So you might think, oh, well, you just get distracted by something else. And, and that's why you forget what you had to do. But it turns out that there's something special about going through a doorway, or at least changing the room context so drastically, uh, that essentially wipes out uh, your working memory. So your working memory is the type of memory that you use in order to store things for short periods of time to act upon them. So, for example, if I need to, you know, remember a phone number, which these days we don't anymore, um, I would just kind of repeat it in my mind's ear (laughs) uh, until I write it down or, or type it into, you know, my phone. And then once I've, do- once I've done whatever I wanted to do with that information, that information kind of goes away. So we call it working memory um, because it's not, it doesn't get stored in the long term. Um, and so the study here where they were looking at people uh, going through these virtual uh, mazes and they found that sure enough, when the people went through a doorway, they did forget you know, more often what it was that they were supposed to do. So can this help those of us who are often faulted in our like relationships for forgetting everything, we can just say, well, I went through several doorways. And that's... <laughs> can you get me off the hook? Well, if it works for you, Chris, you've got, I don't you've think got it's a special work. woman. <laughs> I don't uh, think it's no, going to work. Yeah, I think I think what, what's what the key insight here is that you know our working memory has what what some psychologists call the visuospatial sketchpad, um, and it suggests that both visual and spatial information is much very much tied to what it is that we're trying to remember, and there's and that it's a sketchpad, so it gets rewritten all the time, um, and that there is some kind of automatic updating that happens when we come into a new context uh, that that gets rid of what was already in the sketchpad and leaves your working memory open to you know new 
information because, of course, we're limited by how much cognitive resources we can devote to working memory at any given time. So, yeah, in a way, it's a little bit like um, energy saving in the brain and, right. uh, and, and a way of us, you know, continuing to keep some part of our brains open for whatever's, whatever's on the other side of the door. Mm-hmm. And we can blame evolution. I mean, it makes sense that, you know, you don't have infinite cognitive abilities to do everything and think about a lot of different things intensely at the same time, or in this case, remember everything that's going on. And so, so in, in effect, you know, you wipe the slate because you need to be able to use that energy and that cognitive process somewhere else. I mean, that makes, makes sense to me, at least. Yeah. You know, if, if you've survived going through the doorway, then maybe you need to pay attention to what's in the new room rather than, you know, what was in the old room. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, cool study. And it's good to learn about memory because somehow maybe mine will get better because of it. So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Eugenie Scott and Ann Reed. This is Inquiring Minds producer Adam Isaac. Last week's episode with Michael Pollan brought in a huge number of new listeners. So let me first just say, if you're new to the show, welcome. You can stay up to date with what we're up to by following us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen on SoundCloud, and as of yesterday, listen to us on Stitcher. So we hope you stay with us. And with that, let's get back to the show. Eugenie Scott, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you, Chris. It's good to be here. And Anne Reed, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you, Chris. So we're thrilled to have both of you with us here in this admittedly kind of cozy studio we have um, to talk about the passing of the torch at the National Center for Science Education, which is one of the leaders out there in fighting the good fight to make sure kids get taught what they need to be taught about evolution and climate change, which is never easy. So Eugenie, let me ask you the first question. I've known you at least a decade. I think. Uh, Pretty I close, remember, yeah. Yeah, yeah being trying, with you. I'm trying to remember. I remember you came out to our office once in San Francisco, in uh, in Oakland, and we had this 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 great lunch where we just talked about so many things. We nerded you, out. We nerded. Lunch. Oh <laughs> man, we're good at that around NCSC. I forgot about that, but we, I, yeah. I was also there in Dover when you were there in yeah. 2005 in yeah. Pennsylvania, which turned out to be this big, big victory. Uh, that it was, yes, that's for sure. So you've been leading this fight for 27 years to get our kids better taught, um, with a lot of people resisting that. So as you leave this post at NCSE, uh, where does science education stand as you see it when, when you're leaving? You know, you, you, you mentioned Kitzmiller versus Dover, mm-hmm. uh, the intelligent design trial. Um, if it hadn't been for Kitzmiller... And if it hadn't been for a lot of the other things that NCSC and our allies have been involved in over the last couple of decades, we'd be in a whole lot more trouble than we are. Uh, I mean, sometimes at NCSC, it feels like the Red Queen. You know, we're running as hard as we can to stay in the same place. But that's not true. Um, just to take Dover as an example, if we had not succeeded in Dover, it would have been Katie bar the door. It, there were, we knew of some states, we knew of some school districts that were just poised to introduce their own policies that would have been very similar to Dover. Yes, thou shalt teach intelligent design or some similar nonsense. And they were just waiting to see how that decision went. Well, the decision went in the way that we all were very happy about. It was such a strong decision that uh, the school districts and legislatures just crumpled up those bills and they didn't pass. And that's pretty much the case. I mean, Dover was really high profile. A lot of people who hadn't heard of us before heard of us after that. 
But so much of what we've done for decades has been behind the scenes, helping individual teachers, helping small school boards around the country. And it doesn't make the papers, but it has made a huge difference. Uh, and Anne, let me turn the question to you. You're you're newer to this, but you have experience in a lot of different parts of science, including you led the sequencing of the 1918 flu virus at the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, but you also have worked on environmental science issues and biological issues such as uh, running the American Academy of Microbiology. So taking over here, can you outline for us a little bit of what you think your priorities are going to be and the challenges you think that NCSE has to take on? Well, clearly I have enormous shoes to fill, although Jeannie's feet are not really that big, but her <laughs> legacy is <laughs> enormous. And uh, But I'd just like to say that in all of my uh all of the places where I've worked in science, either as a laboratory scientist or in science policy or in science outreach, I've been depending on NCSE, whether I knew it or not, because we all need an organization like NCSE to be out there monitoring the kinds of bills that come up, helping the local um, communities who want science taught to their children, make sure that that happens. So uh, I just wanted to say that I may be new to actually working at NCSE, but I have been dependent on it for a long time. Well, let's let's talk about some of these uh, specific issues here. Um, so, and let's take evolution first. This is the one that you know you have won important court cases, and so in a sense, you the evolution side usually wins its court cases, but the struggles never end. You had uh, Texas. Uh, the most recent problems in Texas were holding back the approval of a biology textbook uh, by Kenneth Miller, which is one of the top books. Uh, there were just revelations about anti-evolution content being taught in publicly funded charter schools in Texas. So the attacks don't stop. They just evolve. Right. Bingo. And that's the irony. Right? So do you just is is this could be for both of you, I guess. But Jeannie, first, do you, you just have to keep evolving with them? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've my my smart alecky comment on that is that if nothing else evolves, Religion does, creationism does, and we've seen over the past 30 years or so the movement from straight-up young earth creationism to intelligent design to the current creationism du jour, which is teaching the strengths and weaknesses or evidence for and evidence against. They have all kinds of nice little linguistic dances that they, that they do to try to denigrate evolution. Ban, balance, and belittle is sort of a, a little mnemonic that we use to to remind us of this history. And now we're in the the phase where um, the legislation, the school board policies, the approaches are much more subtle. It doesn't sound like a legal uh, uh, issue. Well, we're just teaching both sides. We're just teaching the strengths and weaknesses. What could possibly be wrong with that? And, of course, the fact that you're singling out evolution or climate change or both among all the possible uh, scientific topics, it's more, obviously, than just a uh, critical thinking kind of exercise. This is, this is the latest manifestation of creationism. It's a way of sneaking in the stuff through the back door. And let me let me ask you, can this fight ever be won or is it kind of eternal? I mean, I, I recently did an article about the reasons that people deny evolution and they included uh, cognitive factors that are you find in young children. Young children are naturally teleological. They think things have a purpose, which predisposes towards intelligent design, for instance. Um, in interesting research saying that fear of death leads to more rejection of evolution and need for certainty 
in times of chaos leads to more reject. These are psychological studies. Uh, so there's something going on with people where they don't want to believe uh, that evolution happened because it, it unsettles them. Isn't that always going to be around? Well, maybe we need to take the long view. I think um, discovering that the Earth was not the center of the universe was probably pretty upsetting for yes. probably <laughs> centuries. And so uh, in the long view, I do think the battle can be won. But I think what's underneath your question is a very important point and that NCSE has been aware of for a long time, which is that you can't convince people to accept evolution by throwing more science at them. It's not just a matter of if you would just sit down with me, the scientist, and let me explain to you all of these fascinating and 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 incredibly well-supported facts about evolution, you would agree with me. That doesn't work. We know that doesn't work. Um, not that you'd throw the science out the window and say, we're not going to talk about that because the science is beautiful and very convincing, but that you do need to take these other things into account that, that the reasons that people are rejecting it is, are, are not because they're stupid or they're ignorant or they're ideologically motivated, but but because they have these other um, psychological and and um, group belonging um, aspects that are keeping them from hearing the science. So uh, this is I'll invite either of you to comment on this. We're about to have a gigantic drama in the evolution issue, which is that Bill Nye, the science guy, is going to debate arguably the leading creationist, Ken Ham, at the Creation Museum in Kentucky. This is February 4th, uh, and 900 tickets sold out in two minutes. What does this do for the cause? Eugene, I know you've um, been against this sort of thing. On the other hand, it's kind of new and disruptive. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what it yeah, 900 tickets sold out, not one to a supporter of Bill Nye. Well, I, I don't can, know. I don't know who bought can, the tickets. Uh, that, that's, that's my hypothesis, probably okay. testable in a, in a yeah. few weeks. They're also um, going to stream it live. So, I'll, Oh, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll all watch, that's yeah. for sure. No, I mean, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, many, many years ago, back in the 90s sometime when the Earth was young, I, I wrote an article called Debate and the Globetrotters, where I compared creation and evolution debates from the evolution standpoint to going to a Globetrotter game. Now, if you actually watch the players that the Globetrotters play, you know, they, they, care, they, they bring this team around with them. They used to call them the Washington Federals. Now they call them the International All-Stars or whatever. But they bring along this team that they beat up on, you know. And the uh, International All-Stars are pretty good ball players. They get off some good shots. But nobody notices because you're there to watch the Globetrotters. And that's pretty much what a creation and evolution debate is. You're there to watch the creationist. You're there to cheer on your hero. You're not really there to learn about the science. And very few people actually attend these debates to learn about the science. And the format of a st classic stand-up debate is really not the best way to help the public understand science. Um, debate is a sport. It's not the way we do science. So just from the get-go, this is a bad idea. That said, uh, Bill Nye's got a number of things on his side. Number one, he's not a scientist in the sense of somebody who is a professional research academic, whatever, whatever. He actually knows a whole lot of science. But the thing that Bill mostly has going for him is that he is an entertainer and debates are entertainment. He's smart. He's articulate. He knows a lot of science and he knows how to deliver a line. And so ironically enough, the non-scientist 
small s, uh, Bill Nye is probably going to do a whole lot better than most other than, than most academic PhD scientists who have uh, uh, long lists of of uh, peer reviewed publications behind them. Um, that said, it's still a bad idea. But obviously, we wish Bill well, and we hope that uh, the public goes away from this with at least a little better understanding of how science works. You know, if I were Bill Nye and I were doing this, which I wouldn't under any circumstance, what I would try to do is help the viewing audience. I mean, forget about the 900 people in the audience. They're there to cheer Ken, okay, you know fine. Uh, I would I would be talking to the streaming audience, and I would be examining the uh, young earth creationist position, and it, the way a scientist would. You know, if the uh, young earth position on, well, age of the earth, you know, if the earth is really only 6,000 years old, you would not expect to find A, B, C, D. You know, really, because if then is kind of the way science works. And if I were Bill, that's the way I'd do it. Um, so we'll see what happens. Uh, we will be watching. I'm sure you will be also. Yeah, I'll be watching. What do you think of this, Anne? Well, it's been a a, a real um, jumping in the deep end uh, for me to learn about why uh, debating is a bad idea and how these debates generally go. And, and we've had a lot of talk around the office about what would be the best way to handle this and what has worked in the past and what hasn't. So that's been really eye-opening for me. Hmm. I would... Let me just dis disagree. I would go at it like this. I'm not not saying that I would do not a great job or that I would do as well as him or even close, but I would actually go at it and I wouldn't I would try to not talk about science. Well, I would talk about science, but I would talk about why do you have such a problem when there's so many religious people that don't have a problem? And why is this a contradiction to your beliefs when it isn't a contradiction to their beliefs? I don't know. That's kind of that's my theory. Oh yeah, yeah. at NCSC <laughs> yeah. we talk about diffusing the religion problem, yeah. and that's always step one. Um, Anne is right. I mean yeah. these these problems are not solved by piling on more science. You have to get the fingers out of the ears so that the science can be listened to. And diffusing the religion issue is how you get the fingers out of the ears. Yeah. And one of the ways of doing it is just like you described. You make it clear that the particular position of origins that's being presented to you, which in the Answers in Genesis, Ken Ham version is special creation six, 10,000 years ago or so, uh, everything created in its present form, and that's it. Um, that position is not a standard Christian position. Um, it's There even are differences within the evangelical community as to how much of that absolutely is required by, by the Bible. So, uh, and then, of course, that's only maximally a Middle Eastern monotheism's position. You find it in Christianity, Islam, and um, Judaism. You don't find it in Hinduism. You don't find it in Buddhism. You don't find it in the other world religions. And you certainly don't find it in the tribal religions that comprise probably a third of the planet's uh, occupants as well. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not a, um, it's not a view that stands alone in some sort of a false science versus religion dichotomy. And you talked about taking the long view on this. The latest Pew survey found 33% of Americans are outright biblical young earth creationists. So they say that this is a, this is a quote from the question they ask. Um, Humans and other living things have existed in their present form since the beginning of time. Another 24% believe that a supreme being guided evolution, which may or may not mean that they believe in intelligence is not clear. What, there are probably different kinds of people in that category. In the long view, what, is it, what would it mean and what would it take to change these numbers that have been sort of stable for so long? 
Well, part of the reason I think those numbers are stable is because the questions that are asked are always the same. And I understand that that gives you some uh, historical uh, sense to your surveys. But if the, if the questions are bad from the beginning and continue to be bad, then you're going to continue to get those kinds of answers that uh, asking people if they believe in evolution is just not an appropriate question. Mm -hmm. And and I think if you were to ask people questions that would um, establish whether they actually understand and accept some of the major principles of evolution, I think that you would find you would get very different numbers if you asked people, do you believe that organisms change over time? For example, that dogs um, came from wolves. Probably people would say yes. Um, do you believe that uh, dogs are more, close, more closely related to cats or more closely related to fish? You would get the, the answer that's appropriate for evolution. And so I think if we could get away from this um, forcing people into a dichotomy, we would get much um, more encouraging answers. But if you ask them uh, whether flu viruses evolve, <laughs> I think everybody would agree with that in some sense. Well, system. I would hope so, yeah. although year after year after year, we still have to keep saying to people, you have to get a flu shot this year because the virus has evolved since last year. So maybe not. Yeah, but I remember George W. Bush, who was not a great person on evolution. I think when when there was some kind of flu announcement, he actually kind of had to sort of say something about evolution. If I'm remembering correctly, it didn't seem challenging in that context. Well, I think people are less threatened by viruses evolving than people. But um... <laughs> so let's shift to the climate issue, and I'll ask you another question about that. So NCSE recently, or at least in the last two or three years, you took on climate change in schools. So here's the first question. Do you think that these are the same people that you're up against uh, on both issues? To what extent? I mean, and either of you, I guess, can answer this. Uh, you know, it's you would think that it would be completely different issues um, where, you know, there's the religion issues and then there's the economic issues. But there seems to be evidence of com more commonality than you would think uh, in the sense that there's actually research showing that uh, religiosity is correlated with certain kinds of climate denial. And then the strategies are starting to pair themselves up together practically. So you get these bills that actually attack both. So, I mean, is it the same? You know, I, I think a useful way of looking at this, and, and I mean, it's useful to me and maybe to others. Um, we've got a couple of sciences here, uh, evolution and climate change, that are well accepted in the science community, but there's this big disconnect with the public. Why is that so? Well, if you examine the disconnect between the public and evolution, the disconnect between the public and climate change, there's this ideological uh, basis. It's not because the science is bad. People don't obsess over the Cambrian explosion, okay? They, they don't obsess over, well, you know, a few, CO2. A few might. <laughs> yeah, but in general, that's not what gets you to go down to the school board and testify, okay? Right. It's not the science. There's an ideological opposition. For evolution, the ideology is religious. For cl climate change opposition, the ideology is almost entirely political and economic, you know, uh, conservative uh, uh, politics, libertarian economics. There's an overlap. But if you really examine um, the uh, conservative Christian community, there's a lot of green Christians out there. There's a lot of people who hug trees as hard as I do, um, although they're not real keen on evolution, okay? Um, over there in the political um, realm, as it were, there are lots and lots of conservative uh, Republicans, conservative uh, political people 
who have, don't care about evolution. This just isn't it. But they really worry about losing their personal freedoms if we have to change our light bulbs or whatever. Um, so there's an ideological opposition to both of these sciences, if you will. But the ideology is largely different. There's an overlap. There's there's a certain, you know, there's an overlap because there's an overlap. Be, there are Some conservative religious people are also conservative politically. It's what we call the religious right. But it's the existence of the religious right, I think, that is coloring our um, understanding of these two sciences and their position in the public. It's because the religious right is again and both against evolution, against climate change, that we sort of think, oh, well, therefore, all religious conservatives are also against climate change. And that's not true. So I think it's it's really useful to kind of understand the structure of the problem is the same. It's an ideological opposition, which means you can't just solve it by throwing science at it. But it's a different ideology, and you have to deal with those ideologies differently. You have to assuage those concerns differently. But tactics, you mentioned. Tactics is tactics, as it were. Um, if something works, you're going to use it. Uh, the tactics that worked for the tobacco manufacturers when they were trying to um, uh, denigrate or or at least make uh, less probable the acceptance of the scientific evidence that smoking makes you sick, those are the same tactics that are used very efficiently by the uh, evolution folks and also by the climate change folks and anybody with an agenda. So tactics are universal. They're not tied to any particular ideology, in my opinion. So, Anne, this will be an issue that you really shape because it's still kind of new um, in terms of, I mean, a lot of people don't even teach climate change or climate science in schools. So what do you see as the agenda for making America climate literate? What, what has to happen? You know, I, mean, we're, well, I don't I'm, think we I'm, are right now. I'm very thankful that that task doesn't fall on my shoulders alone. Um, I think it's very heartening that the next generation science standards include climate change include evolution, and NCSE will certainly be working with all of the organizations that are trying to make sure that those standards are adopted and implemented. I think uh, underlying what Jeannie said about tactics being the same, this this uh, problem of science denial uh, pops up in, in lots of different areas with evolution and climate change being perhaps the most um, consequential, and, and the tactics that are used uh, to poke holes in science um, are common to those those topics. And and so I wonder if NCSC will move more into the direction of how do you how do you get at that problem of science denial outside of a specific issue? And and how do you um, improve our science education in a way that children grow up understanding that tactic? Because if you if you know it's coming, you're much less likely to be fooled by it. So does that mean that I mean, who knows where there's time in high school for this, right? But does that mean something like critical thinking or understanding how to find good information and rather than bad on the internet? Is that what you mean? I mean well, yeah, there was, a, there was an article in, um, I think it was in the Atlantic several years ago called Why Johnny Can't Google. <laughs> <laughs> and and you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the education has to change to, to take into account the fact that all the facts are at our fingertips now. People don't need to be spending their time in school memorizing facts. They need to be learning how to distinguish reliable facts from unreliable facts and, and how to find the information that they need to do that. So if NCSE can be involved in that, and again, I'm glad that we aren't alone in trying to do that, I think that would be a very important direction for us to move in. But the, the difference 
with this issue as opposed to evolution. They both have big ideological overhang, but the difference is that a lot of schools don't even teach climate change at all, right? Whereas they're all supposed to be teaching, whether they are or not, um, supposed to be teaching evolution. It's less established. Is that Would that be a fair characterization? I think it's, well, I think it's fair, except that I think that evolution is probably taught a lot less than, than people say it is, or than it's certainly than it should be. And yeah. it's unimaginable to me for an, a biology class not to mention evolution every single day. But I know that they don't. I know that they often skip that chapter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just to underscore something Anne said, the Next Generation Science Standards, the NGSS, calls for uh at least the introduction of many climate change principles in middle school as well as high school in inappropriate disciplines. Evolution's been around a lot longer as a, as a disciplinary concept in biology and geology or earth sciences, as they call it in K-12. And part of it is that climate change has not become as serious an issue as it has been um, recognize, except within the last 15 or 20 years. And so it's going to take the, the, the ship of education is steered slowly, shall we say, like all battleships. It takes a while to turn it. But this is going to happen because and part of it is because teachers are very excited about climate change and they see how they can use it in so many ways to bring in. Um, it's one of these very syncretic kinds of sciences. You can talk about water. You can talk about air. You can talk about land. You got a bio. You got biology stuff. What's happening with the biomes? They're moving up the mountain. You know, they're moving north and south. You can integrate an, a lot of science by using that theme. And so teachers are doing it, even if. It's not actually required in the curriculum. On the other hand, getting it required in the curriculum is very important. But you made a mention uh, in in your earlier question about critical thinking, um, how to find information, nature of science, how to think like a scientist, how do scientists look at problems like this, and why is this way of looking at it, this this, uh, uh, ask a question, test the answers, uh, rinse and repeat, um, this is a way of making decisions about the natural world that needs to have a lot more time spent on it. Um, and this needs to be from kindergarten on this, this method of just of inquiry, if you will, inquiry learning it's starting, but that ship steers slowly and it's going to take a while before it, it filters into all levels. So again, if you take the long view is your outlook, either, either view, um, that it will, the, the teaching of the content will just slowly increase. I mean, it is the biggest change happening to the earth. So the thing is, earth science, I mean, I learned biology and I learned chemistry and physics. I didn't learn earth science either. Um, and then, but also the critical thinking component is just at least everything is going in that direction too. That gets woven in. Yeah? yeah. You think so? And, and active learning and um, in, inquiry-based learning, all of those things are are trending um, but they are slow. And, and climate change, you know, I, I would just, just tying in many of the other areas I've worked in in my career, uh, every single report that comes out of the Nas- National Research Council of the National Academy of Sciences says education needs to be more interdisciplinary. We need to not have the biologists over here and the chemists over here and the physicists over here never talking to each other and the students never realizing the connections between and among these fields. Climate change is quintessentially um, interdisciplinary. And I think that's another challenge to getting it taught in schools. There's not an obvious class 
to teach it in. So it has this strength, as Jeannie said, that it ties together lots of different fields, but it has this weakness that there's no obvious place to drop it into the curriculum. Um, whereas evolution, at least uh, on the face of it, it's obvious it should be taught in biology class. So that's, that's another, um, uh, hurdle to overcome. But again, the whole, uh, education field recognizes that interdisciplinary is the way to go. So hopefully climate change will be, um, a spearhead for that. So on the one hand, you have this this not being not always being taught, and so you have a situation where kids, I think, probably don't know a ton at all. And there was one study that said that Americans, and I think they included teenagers in this, get get a D or an F on climate science literacy. In other words, understanding the basics. So they think that this is if you don't understand anything about climate science, but you've heard something, you think it has to do with the ozone hole because you've heard of that more, right? That's that's sort of the leap that you that you take if you're not science literate. Uh, but then, of course, there is, again, the political overlay. So you, do you think that there's an opportunity just by getting more information in um, to get past some of the political overlay? Or do you think that as soon as you get more information in, you know, you have kids standing up in class saying, my dad says that's not true? Uh, you know, in other words, can more information really stand on its own here? Well, more information is is always good. You just have to introduce it in a way that people can hear it. As Jeannie said, you've got to get people's fingers out of their ears first. And kids are are open. And I think the the area of recycling and energy efficiency. My kids came home from school twenty years ago saying, "Mommy, we have to keep you know use the other side of the paper, and we have to turn the lights off." And um, I said, well, quit throwing all your socks on the floor and we don't have to do as much laundry. <laughs> yeah. But so, um, you know, I think if, if we can get some of this information to kids, it will that that's a good place to start getting the information out into the whole community. It won't always engender that kind of um, pushback from the kids that, well, my dad doesn't agree with that. As a matter of fact, what we found with the evolution issue is that a teacher who just teaches evolution straightforwardly, without apology, just in, with the same attitude that the teacher teaches photosynthesis, doesn't get problems. It's the tentative, it's the fearful teacher, it's the teacher that, you know, uh, precedes the lessons on evolution with some sort of uh, disclaimers and so forth. They get the pushback. I suspect it's going to be the same thing for climate science. We have had uh, teachers tell us that the hand shoots up from the student. You know, my my dad says climate change is a hoax. Yeah, that, that does happen. But a teacher that is confident and that presents climate change science in the same matter-of-fact way that all other sciences are presented is not going to have problems or vanishingly small problems. And part of that, is, of course, means getting the teachers better prepared on the basic science, and also, which is what NCSE has done for evolution, getting them better prepared on how to handle the pushback, because that's something that we've had a lot of practice on. And we that's why we took on climate change, because we figured we might be able to transfer some of these skills to this other subject area. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it makes sense that it it's already hard for a kid to to challenge a teacher and a well-prepared teacher is is very authoritative. I guess not yeah. so much not so much that the teacher is is uh, I know the answers, yeah. but just the teacher is is confident in the teacher's own knowledge and ability. Uh, one of the problems that we noticed with evolution twenty years ago is that a lot of teachers weren't taught it well enough, properly enough, didn't understand it well enough themselves when they were college students, and so they didn't feel confident teaching it when they had their own classes. 
which is one reason why over the years NCSE has concentrated on trying to get the science community to do a better job, undergraduate education at the college level, bring evolution across the curriculum, et cetera. But if the teacher has the confidence to teach either evolution or climate change, um, it's going to things will go much better for that topic in this in the classroom. So one of NCSE's most fun initiatives is Project Steve. You know what this is, right? But uh, for our listeners who don't, this is there's over a thousand scientists named Steve who have signed a statement <laughs> defending evolution, and this was a rebuttal to creationists who had thousands. Uh, of scientists just of any type <laughs> who knows how many they had um oh, signing their precisely. various states oh okay you know <laughs> far pres- fewer far, far fewer, fewer. <laughs> so you you bested them um with just steves right <laughs> so i guess um i guess Ann, i'll ask is are we going to see more things like that or are you going to be able to mix in a little humor as you go here i hope so yeah. because i think it um it it lightens us up your scientists don't have a reputation for being real funny people um but uh but we are uh, <laughs> we do have senses of humor, and I don't know. They've started to rap on YouTube a lot lately, so we're starting to see another side of them <laughs> of, of scientists, and, yeah. and so many of those videos are hilarious. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I, I think humor works really well. I, one of the things that I worked on at the American Academy of Microbiology was a series of frequently asked questions brochures on topics in microbiology that we thought people might be interested in. And for example, we did one on beer. And the title of the beer report was, if the yeast ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, which may not be, you know, a real knee slapper, but at least it's not the microbiology of beer. Um, so definitely, I think humor is really important. Beer. <laughs> I think we could show a lot about that, too. Uh, well, let me just ask each of you for final words on a slightly different question. I'll start with you, Jeannie. So what's the number one thing you learned trying to improve science education for 30 years? I mean, what's the what's the big thing? is how completely awesome teachers are. I have had the privilege of working with and observing teachers that can do astounding things. I'm a retooled college professor, okay? I was considered a very good teacher when I was a a college room teacher. I can't hold a candle to these people. They have skills and abilities that I I would never have in a hundred years. No, there there are some incredible teachers out there, and I've also learned that they don't get the support they need from the public, and certainly not from the um, institutions that hire them. They ought to be paid better. They ought to be respected more. Okay, so here's the teachers, and a final question for you too. So, what's the number thing? Number one thing that if you are able to achieve it at NCSE, you'll think that you really made a difference, or you'll be satisfied. Well, Chris, you know that I've been on the job for two weeks now. So I'm, uh, as our communications director says, I'm still looking for the post-it notes. So I, I, why don't you ask me that question again in a year? I'll have a much better idea. Okay. Okay. Well, listen, um, thank you both for being with us on Inquiring Minds. Great to be here, Chris. Thanks. Thank you, Chris. Great interview, Chris. It's really interesting to hear these two women, um, you know, talk about how they see the future of education and, and science's place in it. Um, and I have to say that the part of the interview that struck me the most really was the uh, discussion of the Bill Nye debate with with Ken Ham. And this is something that I've seen, you know, in the Twitterverse and around. People are are pretty upset at the fact that Bill Nye agreed to do this. Um, and yet, you know, that seems a little bit like a cop out. You know, why shouldn't Bill Nye, um, who's, you know, a fantastic order, who's a really smart 
smart guy, you stand up to someone who's going to be spewing stuff that we know is not backed by the science. Right. And and Eugenie clearly laid out the case in in a way that I thought was was the right tone if you disagree with engaging in the debate, which is saying that, yeah, we definitely want him to succeed and he's probably going to be pretty good at it compared to, I don't know, someone who isn't really debate trained um, and isn't fast on their feet, perhaps. But uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, honestly, I'm split on this because I understand and agree with the reasons that, that Eugenie put forth uh, for not doing it. And I do wholly believe that it's just going to be a gigantic belief affirmation party for all of the people in the audience, uh, maybe a couple exceptions. But at the same time, I feel like this has got a level of attention and visibility that we rarely get for this stuff at all. You know, and, and if, it, if it gets people to pay attention, if it's disruptive uh, and if it's, you know, clips are broadcast on all the major news networks and stuff, which which actually might be possible given the profile of this, then I don't know. It might maybe it'll break us out of a rut. And I guess I kind of like that idea. Yeah. And I think Jeannie's right when she says that there are two different audiences here, right? The ones in the room and then the ones who are going to be watching the streaming um, aspect of it and, and videos later. And so that second audience is, is, in my opinion, just as important and probably much larger than the first audience. Um, but I also maybe I've read too many historical fiction novels set in medieval times recently, but I see this as kind of like sending two knights out to do battle uh, in order to prevent a war. Um, and so, you know, maybe in that in, in some way, uh, this is allowing those of us who who are really interested in this but don't want to continue to to have a war on this um, have some kind of you know catharsis or, or or some feeling of satisfaction that at least someone's taking up the sword. Well, I hope that that's the case, but I'm afraid that it might only be temporary catharsis. And you know, I hope that uh, Bill Nye, while he's uh, at the Creation Museum uh, down there in Kentucky, that he gets to take a ride on the dinosaur. <laughs> Dinosaurs in the Bible? I didn't. Re- I didn't get that. <laughs> well, they have. Um, they have a little dinosaur that you can ride on. Oh, okay. Uh, at the museum, because of course, you know, if you're a full-fledged creationist, you got to explain the whole dinosaur thing. And it, it, the Earth is the history of the Earth is so short. There must have been people and dinosaurs at the same place at the same time. You, you can follow the logic, right? Right. Of course, makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so that's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. To find us online, visit climatedesk.org, and you can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan, and we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Andre Viscontis. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.